I'm reading from the book of Zechariah, the 11th chapter. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, for the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been felled. The sound of the wail of the shepherds, for their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the lions, for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. Thus says the Lord my God, Become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slaughter them and go unpunished, and those who sell them say, Blessed be the Lord, I have become rich, and their own shepherds have no pity on them. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor, and each into the hand of his king, and they shall crush the land, and I will deliver none from their hand. So I became the shepherd of the flock doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs, one I named Favor, and the other I named Union. And I tended the sheep. In one month I destroyed the three shepherds, but I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. And I took my staff favor, and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. So it was annulled on that day, and the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages thirty pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the thirty pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Then I broke my second staff, union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Then the Lord said to me, Take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd, for behold, I am raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed, or seek the young, or heal the maimed, or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hooves. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. Good morning, everybody. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you are our chief shepherd. You are the one, the only one who perfectly pastors and perfectly cares for your people and your flock. Uh, Lord, uh, we, if we find ourselves to be pastors or elders or church leaders, we are merely serving as under-shepherds under your ultimate uh, power and authority as our chief shepherd. Lord, I pray that 
for me personally, I, I've been a pastor for 20 years, and you know how I have failed your people and just not done the things that I should be doing, and so I ask for your grace and for your help in shepherding your people more effectively. I pray that same prayer for the rest of our elders, for the rest of our deacons, deaconess, church leaders here at this church, that we would, in greater ways and more effective ways and better ways, uh, self-sacrifice for the sake of our church as you have sacrificed yourself for us, Lord Jesus, Chief Shepherd. Help me to speak your words today, not my own. We ask that you would be front and center, Lord Jesus. Uh, through Christ we pray. Amen. Well, the current sermon series that we find ourselves in is based upon the book of Zechariah. I had a pastor friend of mine in Calgary say I was crazy to undergo this sermon series, and I'm wondering if he was perhaps correct. Uh, But anyhow, I've actually really enjoyed it and been really encouraged by it. The theme of this book of the Bible is called It Gets Better, and it's actually a very hope-giving kind of book. And really, if you summarize this book, it's all about, it's really a study in the art of demolishing discouragement, saying no to spiritual lethargy and spiritual laziness, and rather saying yes to paying attention to God. It's really a study in getting back on track with God if you've gotten off track with God. And so it's helpful. Interestingly, looking at Zechariah chapter 11, the title for today's message is The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly of Pastoring. The Good, the Bad, the Ugly of Pastoring. I've been a pastor for just over 20 years now, and the subject of this chapter really uh, hits home. Um, You know, I got to say, I see being a pastor as a great thing. It's a great privilege and a great gift. And this is the benefits of being a pastor. Who said pastoring a church is stressful? I'm 42 and feeling great. And I I know what he feels like, man. But anyhow, it's actually a really good thing. And I love being a pastor, as it turns out. I try not to take it for granted. I remember first becoming an associate pastor Uh, Just over 20 years ago, I was the associate pastor at a church in downtown Toronto, of all places. And at the time, I was 24 years old. I was newly married to Tammy, and I was throwing myself into this job as associate pastor, preaching about once a month. I was leading, imagine me leading worship every Sunday, that poor church. Uh, I was part of a rock punk band previous, and I destroyed my voice, and only then did I realize how bad it was. But anyhow, I was working hard and leading the youth ministry. Good things were happening. And I'll never forget that first Christmas, 1999, uh, when we were there and I was serving, and it was the Sunday before the Christmas, uh, uh, the 25th, whatever the Sunday that was, and that church's tradition was basically to give all kinds of gifts to the pastors, and, and we, we had received something like 30 different Christmas gifts. Isn't that crazy? And I'm not. this is not some sort of backhanded, backdoor way of me asking you to do this. It was just that. I don't want any more stuff. We got enough stuff, let me tell you. But, you know, we were 24. We had basically a house that was empty of furniture and stuff. And so they blessed us with these multiple, multiple gifts. And I was like, what did I do? I'm just the pastor. But they, they had, that's how they showed their love uh, to the pastors uh, as a young pastor. And, and I realized in that moment, you know, being a pastor is a great privilege. What an honor. Um, you're loved by your church family, and you, you do your best to love them, and it's a wonderful kind of dynamic and relationship. This is the good part. This is the good part of pastoring. But there are some ugly parts. There are some bad parts to pastoring, and very often uh, the ugly, bad parts to pastoring, they occur when a pastor or an elder is caught up in sin. Most of the time, it, he's the problem when bad things happen, when when pastors act badly. And pastoring 
he's pastoring harshly, he's kind of leading with a hammer with brute force, maybe the pastor is mishandling the church funds in some way, or maybe the pastor, just at the end of the day, using the, the flock to sort of further ahead his own career and personal ambitions. Now, these are very self-centered, uh, pastor-centered approaches to pastoring God's people. This is not good. But this is kind of what we see in our passage uh, today. We see a lot of dysfunctional kind of pastoring. And it's going to be interesting, and this is what we're going to look at, the good, the bad, the ugly of pastoring God's people. Here's the roadmap. Here's where we are going with our outline. You ready for this? First of all, we're going to talk about money-hungry pastors, unloving pastors. Secondly, we're going to look at God's original design and intent for his people and how pastors can be a part of that. And then thirdly, number three, we're going to look at Jesus, our chief shepherd, our ultimate pastor, if you will, and what he did and what he does for uh, his flock and how he keeps us in his good care. That's the roadmap. Let's begin by examining uh, verses 1 through 6 of chapter 11. And you, i got to say, this chapter is very difficult to understand. Fortunately, I was not the, the only one to have a hard time understanding this. Uh, Bible scholars, historically, they argue and they have fights and arguments about what in the world God was trying to convey to his people then and to his people today. I don't know if that's me or not. Maybe I should back up a little bit. But there's all kinds of confusion around this chapter and what's going on. But here's the thing. If this is a confusing chapter, is the issue with God? It is not. The issue is with us and with my limited understanding of, of Scripture. And we believe all Scripture is profitable and helpful for God's people, including chapter 11 of Zechariah. But the first thing that we notice here, in verses 1 through 6, God is upset. God is speaking words of judgment through Zechariah. That's not on. And here's where it gets tricky. Who exactly is God confronting in verses 1 through 6? God, you may have noticed, he talks about Lebanon and all the cedars of Lebanon. Then he talks about the mighty oaks of Bashan. And then he talks about um, another horticultural word picture. He talks about the thicket. Think blackberry bush. Thicket of Jordan and how you know the lion is going to decimate the thicket. Now, some Bible scholars believe uh, God is confronting the nations of well Lebanon and, and Bashan and, and Jordan. You know, they historically oppressed God's people. Uh, but the other thing is, if you look at the rest of chapter 11, um, other scholars, other Bible scholars believe that God is merely using these tree word pictures um, to describe Israel's shepherds and Israel's pastors and Israel's leaders and what they're like. For example, just like a cedar, maybe you have a cedar in your backyard, but we we're talking the cedars of Lebanon. These are massive, huge cedars. Well, just like a cedar is powerful, just like a thicket is strong, just like an oak is rock solid, well, so were Israel's shepherds and spiritual leaders. These were very powerful guys. They were very influential, you see. But I have to agree with this, the second interpretation, okay? So I don't think he's actually talking about Lebanon and confronting Lebanon and Jordan and Bashan. I think he's actually talking about uh, and relating these horticultural word pictures to Israel's spiritual leaders and how badly they shepherded and how badly they pastored God's people in years gone by. So here's kind of what he's saying. He's confronting them. He's, it's like God saying, you shepherds, 
You pastors, you spiritual leaders, look how impressive you once were. Look how majestic you once were. Look how strong you once were. Look how influential you once were. But now I am coming, God says. I am coming to hold you guys and your feet to the fire. I am coming to hold you to account. Now why was God upset with these guys? It's because these shepherds of God's people... He says we're slaughtering their own people. How are they slaughtering figuratively? Uh, spiritually slaughtering their own people. And they were getting away with it. And the way in which they were slaughtering their own people was they were milking God's people for cash. They were getting rich off their own people. And because, with the funds from God's people, buying the mansion, buying the Ferrari, you know, using the flock to get rich quick. That's what they were doing. And then once they had milked God's people of their hard-earned money and cash... What are these pastors praying back to God in response? They are praying something like, Blessed be the Lord for making me so rich. Can you imagine praying that as a pastor milking your own people? Like, this is really corrupt, nasty stuff. Well, how do you think God feels about their prayers to Him like this and their behavior? Well, He's pretty ticked off. Rightly so. He is ticked off. And this is why God's people were defeated so badly and horrifically by Assyria in 700 B.C. and then later again in 500 in the 500s B.C. by uh, ancient Babylon. And that's what ha- Israel's spiritual leaders blew it, and they blew it badly. Their glory was ruined, just like a mighty tree, the mighty cedar being cut down at the root, crashing to the ground. Israel's spiritual leaders and shepherds were... And their glory, their glory was ruined. And that points us to, or brings us to point number one in our notes, simply just beware. Beware. Be on the lookout for money-hungry, non-loving pastors whose glory will be ruined. There will be a reckoning, okay? If you see any of this kind of money-hungry behavior in me, or another elder here, another deacon, deaconess here, church leader here, I mean, beware of us and, and hold our feet to the fire, like, get somebody's attention, okay? Uh, If you find yourself at another church in the future, keep your eyes open for money-hungry, unloving pastors and church leaders. You know, keep your radar up. Don't be confrontational for confrontational sake, but just keep keep your eyes open. Keep your eyes open. Because a lot of people don't. A lot of church members do not keep their eyes open, and it doesn't work or end well with that church. Uh, let me give you an example of this. And sadly, there's been a few megachurches that have done some terrible things, or the pastors in those megachurches have done some terrible things. And I'll give you one example. I won't name the church. I'll let you Google it if you really want to find out which one it is. Um, but it's an example of a, a megachurch, and they fire their senior pastor. Why? Because he was messing with the church's money. And he was also very authoritarian. He was very unloving towards staff and towards people in the church. And so what did the the church do after they fired the guy? They conducted, rightly so, a forensic audit, audit, a forensic audit to determine where did the money go? Well, here's what the report, the financial audit, discovered. And you got to know, the church had no idea that this was happening and for decades. No idea. Let me just list a few of these details from this audit. First of all, the senior pastor's total compensation during the years uh, ranged from about 1.2 to 1.4 million per year. Okay, think of that salary. Think, wouldn't that be nice? 
Okay, wouldn't that be nice? No, I'm te sort of teasing. But that's a lot of money. In addition to that nice big fat salary, well, $286,000 were made in direct payments for the pastor and his own family members for personal expenses. Let me list some of those personal expenses. Twenty grand for accounting, tax, and pension services. $5,000 for a car repair bill. My understanding is uh, his truck hit a light pole in the church parking lot. That's where that $5,000 went. $11,000 for an internet tower at the pastor's house. Uh, Twenty-two grand for college tuition for the kids. So then you need a couple motorcycles. I mean, thirty-three grand for those two motorcycles. And then $100,000 in counseling services. I don't know what was going on. And there's more. Okay, there's more. Uh, 170 grand for hunting expenses. Got to have that. 140 grand for meals, entertainment, sporting events, concert tickets, and club dues. Then 94 grand for clothing and eyewear. Uh, 71 grand. This is my favorite for a deer farm expense. Got to have a deer farm as a pastor. Then he has a private investigator to the tune of $36,000. We think that investigator was hired to keep the the naysayers at bay. Okay. And then lastly, there was a quarter million dollars in improvements for home security at the pastor's house uh, back a few years. Okay, granted, it was 2014, quarter million dollars. So pretty shocking, needless to say. Are you guys in favor of me kind of going this direction? I didn't think so. Uh, spending the church's money to that extent, it's rare, but and I'm thankful that it is rare, but this was a big church with a big budget. And this happened. The question has got to be asked, how did this happen? How did this happen? For so many years, for decades. Well, here's how it happened. Lack of accountability. You know, the pastor, he's all that. It's like there's a glow around him. Let's not push back on the guy. It's crazy. There was a lack of financial and spiritual transparency. No one felt like they had freedom to confront the guy. And the thing is, though, now we're aware of it. Thanks be to God. God will not be mocked. You can't get away with this stuff, man. God finally brought it to everyone's attention. It's now out in the media. It's out in the public awareness. And the giant redwood that this pastor once was, the giant cedar that this pastor once was, with all the money, all the power, all the attention, all of that came crashing to the ground. His glory was ruined. His glory was ruined. And we're praying for repentance to occur. Still has not occurred. My point is, in big or in small ways, you've got to keep your eyes up. Beware of pastors like this who use and abuse their precious flock in, in self-serving, self-promoting kinds of ways. We must pursue uh, accountability, transparency in every way here at Mercy Hill Church and in every church that you know trusts Jesus as Lord and holds to a high view of Scripture. This is what we must do. Let's transition now. Uh, I want us to look at the next chunk of, uh, actually a little bit of chapter 11 there. Look at verse 7 specifically if you have it in front of you. Verse 7, uh, it talks about how Zechariah, he becomes somehow the shepherd of God's people. The shepherd of God's, uh, God's flock. Now, the thing that you need to know, Zechariah was a spiritual leader amongst God's people at that time. Uh, we believe he was not just serving as a prophet of God, but also serving as a priest amongst the team of priests that were at the temple. Um, so we know that. Uh, but the thing is, now Zechariah is saying, well, I'm the shepherd of God's people. We have to assume, I think we should assume, that he is speaking figuratively here, not literally. He's like, I'm the sort of the symbol for my later prophecy. Okay, It's a little confusing, I understand that. And so he says, I became the shepherd of, of the flock, and they are doomed. 
They are to be judged by God later. And we think he's referring to times gone by. Again, Assyria uh, was obliterated Israel in the 700s. And then Babylon took God's people captive in the 500s B.C. But then when Zechariah, he becomes the shepherd of God's people, he takes not one shepherd's staff, but actually two shepherd's staffs in his hands. Now, you may know this. I've talked about this from time to time. Uh, Shepherds used these shepherding staffs, and these were long wooden poles, long wooden sticks, I guess you can call them, Um, and they often had a hook on one end. And what was that hook for? Putting it around the sheep's neck so you could sort of guide it along, hopefully gently. Uh, But that was the reason for the hook, okay? Shepherds would also often use these staffs as weapons to ward off wolves and bears and any sort of nasty creature that would try to eat the sheep because sheep were and are tasty. And then also the the staffs were used by shepherds to guide them in the right direction because sheep were really, really unintelligent. And so they needed all the guiding and direction giving that they could receive from the shepherd. Then the shepherd would use the staff to count his sheep and keep track of them as well. So these were important tools for shepherds. So here's Zechariah, imagine him, holding these two great staffs in his hands, and he names them, not unlike how in the Lord of the Rings they often name their swords. These staffs have names, one he calls favor, and then the other he calls union, favor and union. And it is with favor and union that God uses Zechariah to figuratively lead and shepherd and care for God's people. Are you confused yet? Bear with me. Hopefully that clarifies some of that. What do we learn from this? Well, we learn that God has positive, loving intentions toward his people. Okay? He desires to pour a favor and union on or bring about union in and with his people. In fact, let me share with you, just bear with me, it gets a little technical here. The the strict biblical definitions of these of the Hebrew words used for favor and union and unity. Here's the definition of favor from the Hebrew word. It is simply God's kindness, His pleasantness, His delightfulness, and His beauty. These are the things that God poured out on His people based on His covenant of love that He established with them in and through Moses. Think of the Ten Commandments. Then look at the definition of unity from the Hebrew word. It means to wind together tightly as with a rope, to bind to bind and hold together. In other words, God desires for his people to stick with him and stick with each other. Trusting him, loving him, obeying him, but like a tightly wound rope keeps things together, are we to remain tightly bound together with God and his people? Is that making sense? Later on, if you look at verses 10 and 14, we discover that something happens to these two staffs. What happens to them? Basically snapped in half, obliterated. They are broken. Why? Well, the two staffs of unity and favor are broken because of Israel's bad pastors and shepherds, because of the general disobedience of God's people. But my point is, God's intention for his flock then and his his intention for his flock today is the same. It is favor. It is it is union and unity. He desires for Mercy Hill Church, every church. He wants us to experience His favor, His kindness, His pleasantness, His beauty, His delight in us. He desires for Mercy Hill Church to experience unity, to 
for us to be tightly wound together with him and with one another. And we receive these great gifts and these great intentions from God most perfectly and most excellently, excellently through, through whom? Through Jesus, through faith in his son Jesus and what Jesus has accomplished for us in and through and by the gospel. This is what he wants for us. And that leads us to point number two in your notes, simply the Lord desires to pour out favor and keep his people unified in him. In thinking of this, I was reminded of, of my mom. And my mom was a force of nature, passed away a couple years ago, but a real force of nature and very strong. And mom was really uh, the definition of matriarch. You might uh, be, I can't remember her name offhand, but there was a matriarch on uh, the old show, Everybody Loves Raymond. And it was an Italian family. And, and that mother in that uh, sitcom just reminds me of my mom in a lot of ways. But uh, she redefined matriarch. And my mom loved her family. She loved the grandchildren. And her desire was to pour out all kinds of, of favor on the family continually. And also to keep the family unified and together. How did she pour out favor on her family? Well, no one was more generous than mom. She was constantly making quilts for people, random people even, but family members, random people, everyone had a quilt in Grand Prairie. She was always making cinnamon buns for everyone, loved to, loved to bake, loved to, to make stuff, uh, was a seamstress extraordinaire. And then in addition to that, it was like she was doling out money to everybody, every Tom, Dick, and Harry, getting money, money, money. From, but that, she was that generous. She was that person. She was a missionary's dream. You know, you go to my mom, yeah, yeah, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. I mean, uber generous, and her middle name was Favor. Now, how did my mom keep our family unified? Well, you need to know um, that she was the one that hosted the Christmases. She was the one that hosted all the Easter's, all the birthday parties for the entire extended family. And, and, and when she got us together for all of these family events, we were all in the same room, eating too much together, but we were building relationships with keeping connected, you see. That's what she did. Kept us unified. Then, if any one of us siblings, you know, I'm part of a, a family that, of six kids. And, you know, with six kids, there's going to be a higher odds of some, some fights along the way. And even if, as adults, we're starting to squabble and squibble with each other, what's mom doing? Well, mom's working behind the scenes. Would, why, don't you, why don't you call this sibling? Why don't you work things out with them or with her or with him, whoever? Mom was that... It just destroyed her if the siblings were not getting along. You see where I'm going? In a much greater way, God's intentions for Mercy Hill Church are kind of like that. It's all about favor. It's all about unity for us. Jesus, the chief shepherd, he takes these two staffs, if you will, of favor and unity, and he takes these staffs and he leads us with them, and he takes care of us with these two staffs of favor and unity. And so what we've got to do, here's our action plan. We've got to be praying uh, that God would keep pouring out your favor on us. Keep pouring out your power on us. Keep pouring out your daily grace on us. Holy Spirit, we need power to pursue your mission to help people become more people become disciple-making disciples of Jesus for God's glory. Uh, Holy Spirit, we need you to bring about a greater level of holiness in us. So pour out your favor and your power so that that happens more and more in us and in our church family. Then we've got to be praying to God, keep us unified in Christ. Keep us unified and together with you. Uh, empower us to love one another. Help us to, to remain bound together and, and maybe to strengthen those 
those bounds together in love that we might better display your character and your love to our lost and dark world. That's what unity does. You see, unity preaches Jesus. Unity preaches the gospel. That's why we are to be unified and not fighting with one another. And so that's what we must pray for. Let's move on. Let's finish things off. I want us to look at uh, verses 8 through 17. What most Bible scholars think is happening in verses 8 to 17 is a description. It's like a history lesson. Uh, It's like a description of what happened to ancient Israel when her shepherds were bad, when her spiritual leaders dropped the ball, they disobeyed God, that then led the people to disobey God, and then God, what does He do? He will not be mocked, He disciplines His people. He does, and it's very descriptive and it's pretty harsh. And the lesson for them and for us is simply, you got to stay true to God, no matter what. There's no upside to drifting spiritually. There's no upside to rejecting God. All He wants for you, what He wants for us, He just wants to keep pouring out His, his favor and his, and his transforming grace on us through Jesus. And then He wants us to, to remain unified with Him and unified with His people. Don't give up on the church. You see, that's what He wants. And so let's move on. Let me ask you though, I want to look now more specifically and forensically, if you will, at verses 12 and 13. You may have noticed something there that's interesting. That's a little different. And what we see in verses 12 and 13, Zechariah talks about his wages. Remember, he's this figurative shepherd for God's people. And then, you know, you tend to get paid for being a shepherd at that time. And the wages that Zechariah receives are only 30 pieces of silver. At that time, that was a laughably tiny amount for a shepherd to receive or make in one year, probably one year's time. All right, so what does that show? When you pay your pastor, I'm not, this is not some sort of backhanded way of saying something to you. I'm paid very adequately and very well. I'm very glad for that. But if you pay your pastor, your church leader, this amount every year, what does that say about how you love that pastor? What does that say about how much you love God? Well, okay, it's, it's not a good reflection is my point, okay? So they're paying him just basically like, I don't know, 30 bucks a year or whatever, 30 pieces of silver. It's probably like 200 bucks a year, whatever it happens to be in modern currency. So it's basically saying they're showing disdain towards God's shepherd, Zechariah, and they're showing disdain towards God himself. It's not good. What does God then tell Zechariah to do with this measly 30 pieces of silver? Well, he says to Zechariah, throw it to the potter, which Zechariah says, and it then says that Zechariah throws it into the temple to the potter. He throws it into the temple to the potter. And the bottom line is, these 30 pieces of measly amount of silver symbolize how God's people, they have rejected God Himself. They're saying, God, you don't matter to us. You are not valuable to us. Here's the connection. Okay, you still with me? This is technical stuff. This was tough to sort out. Let us now fast forward 500 years from the time of Zechariah to in and around uh, you know, 30 BC, 30 AD rather, to the time of Jesus. And that's where we now find ourselves. If you look at Matthew chapter 26 and 27, how much was Jesus, the God-man, betrayed for us by Judas? 30 pieces of silver. Okay, Where were those 30 pieces of silver thrown into the moment that Judas regrets his betrayal against the God-man Jesus. 
he throws them into the temple. After which, horrifically and tragically, Judas hangs himself. Then, what do the chief priests do with that money that's scattered on the floor of the temple? Well, they, they say, well, it's blood money. We can't use it to buy or use anything that we need here in the temple. It needs to be somewhere else outside of the temple. And so what did they do with these 30 pieces of silver? They purchase a potter's field, and there it is to this day. That's what they do. Here's what we learned from this prophecy. Only God could have written the Bible. Only God can prophesy something with that kind of detail 500 years before it happens. And so I'm telling you, this book that we call the Bible, it can be trusted. You can bank on this stuff, man. It's from God. It is true in every way. It is true in everything it says. The book that we call the Bible is powerful. This book is to be consumed and spiritually eaten by us each and every day. It's our ultimate guidebook. It's our ultimate roadmap and inspiration. You can trust the Bible. This stuff's true, man. But here's what else uh, we learn from the 30 pieces of silver prophecy. I mean, this is clearly a sneak preview to Jesus, is it not? This is a sneak preview from God for his people. Guys, a greater shepherd is coming. A greater shepherd is coming. An ultimate shepherd, he will also be rejected by his own people. This is a shepherd, he will be betrayed, not unlike how Israel and the bad shepherds betrayed God back in the day. He's going to be betrayed by God's people again. Very similarly, and more terribly. But thanks be to God that while this good shepherd, yes, he would be betrayed, yes, he would be beaten, yes, he would be horrifically killed by us on the cross, well, that in that ultimate sacrifice of Jesus being nailed to that cross, through the cross, a way would be open for us to be forgiven by God, to receive the favor of God like we had never seen before, to become unified in relationship with God and unified in relationship with his people again. It's amazing. And that leads us to point number three in our notes, simply that Jesus, our ultimate good shepherd, he was struck for us for a mere 30 pieces of silver. But he was struck for us. He was struck for us. He was struck for us. No greater love has the universe ever seen than the love displayed when Jesus laid down his life willingly on the cross for us. He died horrifically in order to pay the price of death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Jesus paid those wages of sin in full forever. He did that for, for us, out of love for us. And so let me speak to you. If you're not yet a Christian, I just want to talk to you for a second. I'm saying this is the ultimate shepherd you need. He is not corrupt. He is not money-hungry. He is not abusive. He is not unloving. Rather, Jesus provides. Jesus gives. Jesus is wise. Jesus is wisdom itself. Jesus cares. Jesus heals. Jesus, he nourishes. Jesus will never desert you. I'm just saying, come to Jesus. Come to the shepherd that you need today. And you come, how do you come to the good shepherd? You come by repenting of your sins. You come by believing the gospel that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again. And you come to Jesus by being baptized by your own decision. And if you want Jesus to be your good shepherd, let's have a conversation after the service or even this coming week. I want to talk to you, Christian. There's a few Christians here. Here's my challenge for you as I close. Look, if you've drifted away from the good shepherd, come back to the good shepherd today. Come back. Why? He, well, he loves you. He desires to keep pouring out his favor on you. 
He desires for you to be unified with Him and unified with His church family. So turn from your spiritual lethargy. Turn away from the spiritual drift. Come back. Repent of your sins. Receive His mercy and grace to cover those sins on an ongoing basis and reconnect with Him today. Come home today. Let's, uh, let's leave it at that. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we, we love You for being our Good Shepherd. You're the one who very patiently and very lovingly guides us into your ways and into the ways that you would have us live. We thank you that you help us live lives that are healthy, that are glorifying to you, that actually help us live in a, in a way that is, uh, brings about spiritual flourishing and, and spiritual goodness in our lives. Your way is the best way. There is no better option than, than your way and remaining in your care and remaining with your people. Uh, Lord, just empower us to reach out to our city and our neighborhoods, our coworkers, our family members, to say, hey, here's the favor of God. Here's the favor that's available through Christ. And so empower us to, to be used by you as missionaries in our own city to invite as many as we can to be a part of your flock and to be led by you, our great and good shepherd. We thank you for the gospel, Lord. We gather now to remember all that you've done in and through and by the gospel. Your sacrifice on the cross brought about forgiveness, brought about a relationship with you, and brought about an opportunity to be in relationship with your church family as well. And we are grateful. Through Christ we pray. Amen. So now we're going to transition by responding to God's word in three ways. We're going to have the worship team come up again and lead us in Worship in response to God's word. We're going to take up an offering, which is our way of expressing our gratitude back to God and his mission in and through this local church, helping more people meet Jesus and be transformed by the gospel. And at this point, we're going to have our servers distribute the Lord's Supper. Uh, what this is, is a, a weekly meal that we celebrate as a memorial meal to remember the gospel, remember what Jesus did for us as our ultimate good shepherd. And so we invite any and all Christians to participate in the taking of the bread and the juice. Uh, let me just give you some quick uh, scripture to get our minds on this time of communion. Matthew 27:45. this is when Jesus is on the cross and it says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which is, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? forsaken me. There it is again. He was forsaken for us uh, in our place for our sins. And so with that, I'll turn it over to the servers and to the worship team.